You've heard about the news lately. Phrases or words such as alienation, segregation, intolerance. They're all been cultural catchphrases recently when you turn on the news. This what's been out there. That's why there's a lot of protests and things like that going on. That's why our culture is very nervous. And so many people, especially young people, are, who, who look at society, who look at all the ills of our society, so much of the political, the social, even the economic polarization, are, are they look at all that and they're disillusioned with what they call the system or critical of democracy and hostile to the establishment as they see it, as they perceive it. And beloved, let me say this, they're not all that wrong. Why? Well, well first of all, we're human beings. We are human beings that live in a man-made system. Democracy, just like any other form of government, is a man-made system. When a system is made up by sinners, there's always going to be flaws. There's always going to be injustices. So we, as Christians, and as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, look at the society that we are in, and we are not surprised. Look at verse 3, by the way, of chapter 2. Notice what we looked at last week. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. When we look at the news, when we hear these catchphrases, these words being used, they are coming from a people who are on the course of verse 2 and verse 3 in Ephesians chapter 2. A course that, by the way, beloved, we were once on, but by the grace of God. Amen? Let's keep that in perspective. Men by nature, according to verse 3, are what? Selfish. So in selfishness, we naturally alienate people. We naturally segregate. We naturally show intolerance. People of like mind or like interest naturally cling to one another and group together. And in the process, what happens? People, other people are what? Alienated, segregated, feel like they're intolerated. This is simply one of the many sinful traits of humanity in general, right? So we as a church watch the news. We as a church look at what's going on around us, and we should not be surprised because God's word is not silent about what is going on, because God's word is not silent about humanity and how we are without Christ in our lives. However, as a pastor and as a church, we need to be more concerned about a form of polarization, a form of alienation that happens within the church. And that's where Paul's coming from this morning. He's not talking about a polarization or a segregation or an alienation that's out there in the world or in society in general. He's dealing with it inside the church because it shouldn't be there because the church is to be different from the world in which it exists. It's a polarization that has plagued the church for centuries. It's alienation from one another. And this is what Paul addresses in our passage this morning. In verses 11 through 22, he deals with the inclusion of the Gentiles into it. This time, when Paul wrote this, was generally, mainly a Jewish church. Paul is an apostle to the Gentile world. But when the church started out in Acts chapter 2 in Jerusalem, those believers were primarily Jewish believers. And so for the next many years, the number one problem 
in the church was the reception of Gentiles into that church by the Jews who were the first converts of the church, so to speak. And so we see that in chapter 2 that Paul is dealing with, with this. I want you to know something. A way of looking at chapter 2, by the way, is a little side note, is that verses 1 through 10, Paul is dealing with alienation from God. In verses 11 through 22, he's, deal, he's dealing with alienation one with another in the church. I think that's pretty cool. Alienation among God's people. And that's what we're dealing with this morning. You can see that, that the Apostle Paul has been building and building and building to this moment. In verse 11, when he begins to talk about how in Christ we are not only God, Christ did not only reconcile us to God, but he reconciles us to one another. And from this point on, from verse 11 on, he really begins to develop this and to blow this up for us, all the way to chapter 4, 5, and 6, which is the practical ramifications of this doctrine that we're about to learn this morning. You see, the purpose of Christ's work for man, salvation, is not limited to the giving of new life to individual men and women who were previously dead in sin, as we learned last week. The purpose of Christ's work of the cross goes beyond the individual. The work of Christ also involves the bringing of those individuals together into one family. So if you are in Christ, yes, you're a new creature in Christ, but you also are now introduced into a new family. The work of Christ involves the bringing of those individuals who are saved by grace, regardless of color, regardless of culture, united into a united people of God. In other words, this is what God is, Paul saying this, you know what God's doing? He's making a new community. He's making a new family. He's making a new people who strive together in love for one another and personal holiness. If you could, if you could kind of reduce the Christian life into two categories, it's just those two right there. Loving one another and personal holiness. You're really not a third. Not a fourth. Even your spiritual gifts fall under those two categories. Under the first one, loving one another. God gave you a gift, right, to, to use to the building up of the body of Christ, which is loving others, Christians. And what Paul addresses here is when God started the church in Acts chapter 2, it's that the, the gospel is reaching out to all kinds of nations and all kinds of people. So when you look at that local church, you're going to have all these different kinds of people that look really different and come from different backgrounds, and yet they have this unique other love for one another. That other love is that love which comes from Christ. So let's stand together, and we will read our verses together this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. If you want to know what really is on the heart of God this morning, this is it. Therefore, verse 11, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. <clears throat> but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall, by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments containing ordinances, 
so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to who were near and far away. For, though, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints in our God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, this is the beautiful body of Christ. The local church is a result of the power of the gospel. And it's not just the salvation of individuals, oh God, we learn from your word that it's the, the, the making of a new people, a new community, a new man, men and women who, who come from different backgrounds, different cultures. They look differently. They even act differently, oh God. And yet we are brought together by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, that is eternal power. We are experiencing a relationship with one another that will last for all eternity. We are loving one another that will not stop when we die, but will continue on in the glory of heaven. God, though we have a hard time with this in general, the church, in, 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 in receiving this, God, change us so that we receive this all the more. Help us to forget about ourselves. Help us to forget about our ways, our comfort zones, and to think about the glorious Christ and to be that body that honors Him, that glorifies Him in real and practical ways now in the church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Matthew 16, 18 says, And upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. That is Jesus talking to Peter. Y'all recall that. That's in Matthew 16, 18. In Revelation 5, 8, on the other hand, well, not on the other hand, we also learn that we are given a glimpse of what that church would look like. Jesus before the church says, Upon your confession, Peter, not upon Peter being a, a pope or anything, okay? But upon your confession of me being the Lord, King of kings and Lord of lords, upon that profession of faith, I'm going to build a peculiar people. I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail. And Jesus has been building for 2,000 years. And the gates of hell have not prevailed. But then we look forward to Revelation 5.8. And it gives us a vision of what that church looks like. And we read this. The four living creatures of 24 elders bowed down, bowed down before the Lamb, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and every tongue and people and nation. That's the kind of church it is. So when you look at the church, you go, What in the world do they have in common? From on the outside, it looks like they have much in common at all. It's not what's coming on the outside. It's who's coming on this. See, when God chose, He chose indiscriminately. We read about that in chapter 1, didn't we? 
you get to heaven, you're not going to see that God was partial to any one group of people, to any one nation. Wow. That ought, that ought to produce perspective of Christians inside the United States. The United States is not God's gift to the world. The church is. And the church exists all over the world. Small little hidden pockets and open like we are today. Let's look at one of the most controversial issues that plagued the church ever since its beginning. It is the church's unwillingness to receive others based upon looks, background, and personal opinions. Amen? Maybe the church has always struggled with that. So when you look at the church today, you'll say, oh my goodness, I wish I lived a hundred years ago or a thousand years ago. I would have to deal with that. No, we're going to see that the church dealt with it from day one, basically. Okay? So let's go ahead and look there. What Paul, Paul's approach in this, in these verses is quite simple. He does three things. Number one, he describes who they were, talking to Gentiles in the church now, who we were, and then what Christ has done, and then who we are now. There's always that difference, right? In other words, this is who I was, this is who I am. Who is the difference? Christ is what he's done. Let's look at that. That's a simple outline this morning. Who we once were, verses 11 and 12. Who we once were. He says, therefore, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision. Well, who calls Gentiles the uncircumcised? The circumcised, which are who? The Jews. They had a name for us, right? You weren't circumcised. And I'm sure they didn't say it with much respect. They didn't. They said it with little, no respect. You're uncircumcised, okay? By the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. And Paul's making a point here by saying that, okay? Let me just read verse 12, and we'll go and touch on some of these phrases. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Let's, let's look at these phrases for a minute. I picked some of them. Number one, uncircumcised. Uncircumcised. That's what describes a Gentile. That's how a Jewish person would describe a Gentile. And he's saying, before you were saved, and I get that from verse 12, at that time, what time? From the time of verses 1, 2, and 3, when you were lost. Okay? When you were lost. You were regarded as uncircumcised. As those who did not have the mark of the old covenant, because that's what circumcision was. You don't even have the mark of the old covenant on you. The problem was, you could have the mark of the old covenant, but if it was not matched with inward faith, that outward mark was worthless. Which were the Jews, most of the Jews, not all of them, but by far most of them. They relied on that outward mark for their salvation. But what they needed was an inward circumcision of the Spirit, which means resulted in trusting Christ as Lord and Savior, trusting in the Messiah, not an external circumcision. Write down this. Just turn back a book. Go to Galatians chapter 5, verse 6 to help us understand this a little bit. The church of Galatia, which was a region, the southern region of Galatia, the church had been planted, and someone came along, or a group of people came along with another gospel. And Paul deals with that up front in chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. It was a gospel based on legalism. Okay? A gospel based on legalism. And so that's the context. But I love what he says in verse 6 of chapter 5. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision 
nor uncircumcision means anything. Boy, he's lumping both Jews and Gentiles together with that one comment, isn't he? You know, you know what? Humanity looks might look different on the outside. Jews and Gentiles, as an example, will look different on the outside. But on the inside, they're all the same. We're sinners. That's what Paul spells out in Romans 1, 2, and 3. That's in essence what Paul does in this half of the sentence here. For in Christ, circumcision and uncircumcision means nothing but faith working through love. Go to 6.15. Notice what Paul says again. For neither is circumcision anything nor uncircumcision, but a what? New creation. You must be born again. That's a, he's alluding to what Jesus said. You must be a new creature. You must be born again. It doesn't matter what you do on the outside. It's what Christ does on the inside. You must become a new creature in Christ. It's a work of the Spirit, Jesus teaches us in John chapter 3. You must be born again. And he's not talking about a physical rebirth as Nicodemus misinterpreted, but he's talking about a spiritual rebirth, that which only God can do. That which only God can do. That which God has done in our lives. Therefore, what everyone needs, whether they're a Jew or a Gentile, is not a circumcision, but they need to work with the Spirit on the heart. Romans chapter 2, verse 29. Let me read that. I have that down as well. Romans chapter 2. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. You get that? It's a work of the spirit. So, first of all, Paul's saying, you were uncircumcised. You weren't part of the old covenant. But the Jews were mistaken the old covenant. They thought, they thought that circumcision alone was good enough. But without faith, it was worthless. But Paul comes along and says, it doesn't matter about this or that. Circumcised or uncircumcised, it doesn't matter. You must come to Christ through faith. Which eliminates the division, doesn't it? As we're going to see in just a minute. Let's go to the next phrase. At that time, separate from Christ. At that time. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time. What time? I believe it's referring back to verses 1, 2, and 3. When you were dead in your sins. When you walked according to the course of this world. Before you came to Christ, you were separate from Christ. And therefore regarded as a people without hope of the Messiah. And then we go to the next phrase. Excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. And strangers to the covenants of promise. What does that mean? It means cut off from having any benefits or any advantage like the Jews did. In a sense, they had an advantage because they had the law given to them. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 9. They were given an old covenant where it says, if you obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. That was given to the Jews, not the Gentiles. But the Jews were an example of what any people group would do, Right? Right? They're, they're an object lesson for the universe, for all humanity to know that it's not through the old covenant, it's not by our works that we're saved, but it's by the grace of God, the work of Christ. Not our works, but Christ's work that one is saved. And, and that's what Paul's trying to get them to grip. You Gentiles, you are being incorporated into the body. Why? Because you're coming together, verse 13, by the blood of Christ. Not the blood of any sacrificial system. Not the blood of an animal. You're not coming under the Levitical 
priestly laws. You're not coming out of the Ten Commandments. You're not coming out of you're not coming to Christ through the ceremonies. You're not coming by any of those means but Christ alone. And the reason why Paul's writing this to the church in Ephesus is obviously because they there was this big big turmoil. There was this this, this great division in the church between Jews and Gentiles, and the Jews really having a hard, difficult time accepting Gentiles into the body. And that gets us to what Christ has done. And I love verse 13. Again, you have but now in Christ Jesus. But now. You have, again, that contrasting connective like we had in verse 4. But God. But God. Contrary to what you were. But God. But God has done something. But now. By the way, present tense. It's not in heaven that we're unified. We're unified now on earth. Now. In Christ Jesus, you who were formerly were far off, have been brought near by what? The law. No. The Ten Commandments. No. The, the, the priestly order. No. The ceremonies. No. The sacrificial system of Levitic. No. The blood of Christ. You know, if we see or look around, there's only one color we should be seeing. It's red. The blood of Christ. His blood. Powerful blood brings people together from different backgrounds, different cultures, different colors. Because there's one truth here. The beloved, we in church today, particularly, have a responsibility to reflect that power in a culture that has struggled mightily with these issues. Let's look at some phrases here in verses 13 through 18. Point number two, what Christ has done. Number one, he brought you, he's brought us near by the blood of Christ. Sin pushed man away from God. Or I should put it better. God pushed man away from himself because he became a sin. Adam and Eve out of the garden. Right off the bat. They question the veracity of God's word because God is holy, holy, holy. That was it. That shows you right there, God tolerates no degree of sin whatsoever in his presence because he is holy. I believe what Paul is thinking here when he's writing this, himself being a Jew, is a contrast of Christ's blood with the blood of bulls and goats under the old covenant. And the law was never given to save, but to expose our own and uncover our sinfulness. So we're brought near, not by the law, but by the blood of the Lamb. Why? How? Because Christ fulfilled the law. So we come together through Christ, in Christ, by Christ. So on Sunday mornings, we're about who? Christ. The corporate gathering is not about feeling good. It's not about the next new method or model. It's not about program. It's not about any of those things. It's not about... Oh, what am I thinking? Oh, God, so many things flooding my mind right now. It's not about those things. It's not about entertainment. It's not about us. How many churches meet on a Sunday morning and it's all about them? How many churches are involved in ministry so that their name is getting out there? We're advertised the church. We are the advertisement of Jesus Christ. And I believe for many churches and evangelical circles, we have lost sight of that. And it's so easy when we get off our foundation, which we'll read about in verse 19 and 20. Brought near by the blood of Christ. The law exposes how utterly sinful we are. 
The blood of Christ demonstrates how utterly infinite God's love is. Get the picture. If you're dead in your sins, it's an eternal death. How do you fix an eternal death? Eternal is eternal. How do you fix that problem? It's forever and ever and ever. Wait a minute. You can't, you can't fix forever. We sure can't. So God stepped in and did the impossible. Impossible to us, but not impossible to God. So in Christ, God replaces eternal death with eternal life. Because life, because Christ lives forever and ever and ever. I love the picture of this. The picture is simply when Jesus returned after his after his death, burial, and resurrection, he returned to his disciples, he entered the room. What did he show them? What did he show them? His male appeared. Thomas, poor Thomas. At first, they said, Thomas, he's gay. No, I don't believe, I don't believe. They are all up in the room together. This time, Thomas is included, and Jesus just walks in. And he knows Thomas was down for a couple of weeks. And he said, Thomas, touch, see my, see my hand, my feet. Push my side here. And all Thomas can say is, Oh my Lord and my God. The unbelievable became believable. The unimaginable is now real. And then Jesus, knowing that we would never see him on this earth, said, Blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. And so Paul would write later on in Romans, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Amen? Which is our foundation. The foundation of the church. Which is our stability, by the way. We'll get to that. Alright, let's keep going. Brought near by the blood of Christ. We just talked about that. He is our peace. He himself, verse 14, he is our peace who made both groups into one. I believe in verse 14 he's saying Christ is our peace. But what Paul is really thinking here in the immediate context, he is also our peace one with another. So he is our peace with God, obviously, but if you have that peace, you're also going to manifest another peace. Peace with one another. That's not based upon what we externally have in common, because we come from the same culture or same background. No, but we're going to have peace with one another based on what's inside of each one of us, or I should say who's inside of us, that is Jesus Christ. And Paul is just driving that point home. In other words, we're looking at what Christ has done. He said, he's brought us together. Verse 13, he's brought you near by the blood of Christ. Now, what does that mean? How does that flesh out? It means he is our peace. He is the one who makes both groups into one. Notice it says he does it. He does it. His power, his might, his work. So you look at the church and you say, I want to see Jesus' power. What are one of the manifestations of seeing the power of the gospel, the power of Christ in his body? And seeing the different kinds of people getting together to worship. Not segregating on Sunday mornings, having a black church and a white church, a green church and a purple church. An Asian church, or this kind of church, or that kind of church. Then you have churches that divide on Sunday mornings into what? Based on music, contemporary church, and then you have the traditional church. Love it. All those are man's ways of dealing with earthly sinful problems. That is not the way of Christ. It absolutely flies in the face of passages such as Galatians chapter 2. The application, this is going to unfold in chapter 4, by the way. Let me just give you a little taste of that. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. 
Therefore, based upon who you are as a family in Christ, therefore, I, the prison of the Lord, implore you. Notice the word implore you. I'm really sorry. You've got to do this. I'm urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. He's not talking to the individual. He's talking to the group. He's talking to the family. He's not singling out a believer. He said, I want to talk to all you believers who are in Christ. And here's what you were to do. He's commanding them, by the way. This is not optional. When we get to this passage weeks down the road, this is not optional. Therefore, the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Well, what kind of walk is that? A humble walk, verse 2. You see, without humility, there's no unity. Without humility, there is no unity. What does humility look like? We'll flesh that out more later on. And he's considering others as more important than yourself. Philippians chapter 2. It means, yeah, you could both be right, but who's going to get in? In a gray area. Which is a Romans 14 issue. I can worship on that. I have the right to eat meat, but if you don't want to, you don't like that, how do you deal with that in the church? It doesn't happen without humility. It doesn't happen without submission, which Paul will bring up later on in chapter 5 of Ephesians. You see, a spiritual body of believers take on the characteristic of their Savior, of their head. And the two primary characteristics are humility and submissiveness, one with another. With gentleness and patience. <laughs> Showing tolerance. Oh, that's a, well, we hear that word all the time, don't we? Out in the world, out in society. Tolerance. But Paul's called the church to be tolerant one to another because of our differences. And notice verse 3. Being diligent, diligent, taking great effort, consistent, ongoing effort to do what? To preserve the unity of the Spirit. The Spirit places you in the body, He starts the unity. But it's our responsibility to preserve that which the Spirit has made. You see that? So it's going to get very practical when you get to church. Get to church. Should be a little bit when you get to chapter 4. But let's back up to chapter 2 once again and pick up where we left off. Let's go to the next phrase. What Christ did, he abolished the enmity. He abolished the enmity. You see that phrase in verse 14 and 15. For himself, who's our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier. Let me explain the barrier, the dividing wall, before I go to 15. I, I kind of skipped over that. I apologize. Broke down the barrier, the dividing wall. Here, Paul has in mind uh, a dividing wall that existed in the temple itself, in the temple proper in Jerusalem. There was a dividing wall, and it, the court of the separated the court of the Gentiles to what was inside, and they were kind of outside. But Christ dealt with that wall. He broke down that wall. How important and precious was this? I want you to write down Acts 21 for a minute. I want to show you something here about how important the temple was to the Jews. I mean, it was their life. It was their symbol. It was their, it was their worship. You didn't mess with it. You didn't mess with the rules of the temple, by the way. And, and Paul was actually accused of messing with the rules. Acts chapter 21, verse 27 when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, seeing Paul in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and lay hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and the place. 
And besides, he has been even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled his holy place. What's Paul accused of doing here? Bringing a Gentile beyond that wall and bringing him inside the temple where only Jews belonged. That's what he's accused of here. And it angered them, verse 29, for they had previously, previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him, the city of Jerusalem with him. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple beyond that wall. So you got Paul being accused of taking Trophimus not just into the court of the Gentiles, but beyond that wall, into the inner court where only the Jews belong. And what happened? It made them mad and angry. They wanted to kill Paul. So that tells you what this meant to them, doesn't it? So he, Christ, broke down that barrier that divided you all. And the thing when Paul wrote that, he had that in mind. We must understand how important and precious the separation was to the Jews, which Christ took care of and abolished. Which we go to the next phrase, abolish in his flesh the enmity, the animosity, in other words, the animosity and the hostility that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles because of the law. Notice what it says, which is the law of the commandments. When God gave Israel, when God selected Abraham and through Moses gave Israel those commandments, it separated them as a people. It separated them as a people. And that began the animosity and the hostility between Jews and Gentiles. We're not just thinking the Ten Commandments, but the ceremonial, the dietary, the Levitical laws, and all the social and cultural barriers that resulted from that. We've got our own traditions. You know, Paul's dealing with Jews and Gentiles, the differences, right? But just think about the Gentiles by themselves. We've got all sorts of groups of people in that by themselves, right? Amen? But what we could do as a group of Gentiles, though we're not struggling with Jews as a church, at least for right now, what, is, what we can learn from this principle, what Christ has done between the Jews and the Gentiles, is practically apply it to our own situation and the differences that we have as Gentiles. Right? He establishes peace in the next phrase. I'm going to go on. The law, the old covenant, no longer separates. Why? Because Christ has fulfilled it. He has fulfilled it. He broke down the barrier wall. He abolished the enmity, the animosity, and the hostility. And he did it to reconcile them. Notice what it says in verse 15. So that, purpose statement, in himself he might make the two, the Jews and Jews, into one new man, thus establishing peace. I thought about this. And I'm saying, every once in a while you hear someone say, God's doing a new work in the church. Hold it. Stop. Wait a minute. Measure that thought with the scripture. And I thought, you know what? God, you're not doing a new thing. The church is the new thing. That's the new thing. We are the new thing. What do you mean God's doing a new work? God, by the way, is not going to do a new work that we don't find in scripture. But the one work that we find in scripture that permeates all the New Testament is the work of the church. Not the work of the church, but God building the church, God establishing the church, God taking people from different groups, different top tribes, different tribes, different backgrounds, and making one new man. Here's the problem. In an individualistic, independent society, when we come together for a church, we too often come together thinking independently instead of corporately. Yeah, you've got a personal salvation, but you have a corporate salvation. You are not only married to Christ for all eternity, you're married to his people for all eternity. 
And that's the point Paul is getting at here. As we go on in verse 16, he might reconcile them both into one body to God through the cross by having put to death the enmity, the animosity that existed between them because of their differences. Christ just broke that down. It is beautiful. Go on to verse 18. To me, it's just a precious verse. For through him, that is Christ, we both have our access in one spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, to the Father, God the Father. This is verse 18, the Trinity. Tucked away nice and neat right there in verse 18. In other words, the body of Christ is by the will of God and carried out by the Godhead. Planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son, produced by the Spirit. Isn't that beautiful? We're here as a result of the Trinity. The sovereignty of God. Verse 18, just kind of, Paul just brings that, just tucks it in there. And then finally, 19 through 22, I wish I had more time. 19 through 22, Paul now sums up this section with three metaphors that I prayed for earlier. Fellow citizens, household, and a holy temple. Though, we look at that in verse 19, so that you are no longer strangers and aliens. Gentiles, you're no longer strangers anymore because of Christ. But you are fellow citizens. I think, though Paul does not expound on what that means, he's got to be thanking citizens of the kingdom of heaven. You're citizens of the kingdom. Not earthly citizens, but heavenly citizens. Made up of international and interracial people. A picture of God's rule in his people with all the privileges and the honors and the responsibilities that come along. Someone said, and I'm going to quote this, to be a citizen means this. We no longer live on a passport or a visa. We now have our birth certificate. We really do belong. Do you make other Christians feel that they really do belong because of Christ? Now I know, because I'm human, it's easier to build relationships with some more than others. And even in a great church like ours, okay, we're going to pocket we're going to get along more with others than this, folks. Right? You can actually gravitate with people maybe of like, like mine. Not, not just, I'm not talking scripturally, but just because we have the same hobbies and stuff like that. We just get along better. And folks, we've got to be diligent to reach out beyond those walls within the church and to love on everybody. That's what Paul's going to be getting at later on. I don't want to bring it to our attention now. Why? Because we are, number one, fellow citizens. And number two, we are God's household. He's not talking about the house, but those who occupy the house, the members of the family. I love this imagery here, this metaphor. God's children under his roof. Earlier on in chapter one, God talks about how he's adopted us. And now we're his children. Now he's placed us under one what? Roof. That's the metaphor. One roof. And what does that mean? We're expressing a close relationship of affection and care and support for one another is the picture of brotherly love. Why? Because 20 and 21 and 22, because 20, because the word of God is our foundation. You know, a building is only as good as its foundation. It's only as good as its foundation. It can look beautiful on top, but if its foundation is not sturdy and not stable, it eventually is going to what? Crumble. Christ church. Like a building is based on the word of God, Christ himself being that keystone. The foundation provides stability. The word of God is our stability. The word of God will always point us to Christ. The word of God will always be our stability. 
Church not founded upon the word of Christ will not endure in faithfulness to God. The one who, what does he say, fits us together. Fits us together. Look at verse 21. In whom the whole building being fitted together. What attracts us together is the word of God. Because the word of God exalts Jesus Christ. And it's through the preaching and the teaching and expanse of God's word. That we are being fitted together as a body of believers. Who become what? A holy temple in the Lord. What does that mean? Verse 22. A dwelling where God exists grows, is built together. They grow in reverence. They grow in sanctification. They grow in their walk. Which Paul will get at in chapter 4, 5, and 6. Where we will care for one another spiritually as well as physically. Where we encourage one another spiritually and not just at work and what we do, but in our walk with Christ, our walk with one another. See, in Christ, we are not only married to God, we are not only married to God, we are married to each other. May God bless this word with grace to the church. May we be found diligent, diligent to walk, to think about, to walk in these truths, to think about how to apply them and to reach out to one another, even those in a small body like this that we might not have a whole lot in common other than Jesus himself. May God bless the preaching, the teaching, and the reading of this word.